1: The Economist.
2: In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Kukieh, the data editor, and I'm talking today with Jason Palmer and Tim Cross, our science and technology correspondents. This week, we'll be talking about quantum computing and the business of wild bees. First to you, Jason, you have a big piece coming out on quantum computers. Let's start with a basic question. What are they?
0: They're computers that use quantum mechanics, obviously. Um, I know that doesn't help. Quantum mechanics is a uh, a weird part of physics that has some very strange guesses about how the world works, some very counterintuitive ways that we now understand quantum things can be. And it turns out if you point this in the direction of computing, you get some amazing computing done very, very fast. Normal computers, classical computers, digital computers, the kind we know now, work with ones and zeros. You know this, they're either in a zero state, they're in a one state, they can flip back and forth, and that's how computing gets done. Quantum computers, much weirder. Um, Their bits, cutely termed qubits, um, are kind of one and zero at the same time. You put a bunch of these things together, uh, close together, so that energy can flow between them and they become what's called entangled. This is kind of the beginning of the quantum weirdness. A quantum computer with a whole bunch of these qubits is in kind of all of the states at the same time. Now, the way that you get the quantum advantage from this is kind of like sampling a whole bunch of these states at the same time. What this requires is algorithms that take advantage of this sort of quantum superposition of states. So they're just really, really fast. Is that right? Well, yes and no. The actual bit flipping, the sort of changing of states and so on, is actually slower. Um, What we're we're changing is not so much the processing, but the way that the the question is framed, if you like. So quantum algorithms break these problems down so they can be handled in chunks in this sort of massively parallel way. Algorithms of this sort already exist. There's one called Shor's algorithm, for instance, that can be used on a quantum computer to figure out which two prime numbers, when multiplied together, give you some other number. This turns out to be the way that a lot of uh, cryptography is done. You multiply enormous prime numbers together, you get some prime number out and so on. So certainly that's one of the the sort of obvious applications for a quantum computer. Um, But the point here is not that they'd be faster at everything. It's not going to be uh, better for your spreadsheets and your candy crush and so on. It's specific classes of problems. So certainly they are faster, um, but exactly what kind of problems they'll be good for and just how much faster is very much up for debate.
2: Okay, so I can understand why cryptography is going to be the low-hanging fruit for quantum computing. Where else can we put this technology?
0: Uh, well, there are big classes of problems, for instance, that are kind of minimization problems. So, you know, an image search, say, or, or translation. The way that we do machine learning now, you throw a whole bunch of pictures of a platypus, say, and, you know, you let the computer look at these and analyze these in all these kinds of crazy ways and so on. And eventually the computer can realize by itself what a platypus looks like. To figure out exactly what things to analyze and how much to weight each one and so on, it turns out to be a really big computationally intensive minimization problem. Turns out those are exactly the kind that can be broken down um, and and handled better, faster in a a quantum way.
2: Okay. Let me have a jaundiced-eyed view on this and say that I've been hearing about quantum computing and its promise now for, what, three decades so why should this time be any different?
0: Well, I mean, it's certainly the case that only kind of pokey little prototypes have been made. Shor's algorithm has been run on a quantum computer. It figured out, can you believe this, that 15 is 3 times 5. The the, the results, I admit to you, so far are kind of unimpressive. But a lot of companies now have this kind of as a on, on a watching brief, if you like. There are some enormous companies. Google, Microsoft, IBM, HP all have their own research outfits they have their own kit they're developing their own quantum computer prototypes they have their own teams of people writing algorithms for these things so that when the hardware is ready the software is ready to take take advantage of it so for the first time the, the discussion that we're seeing in the uh, in the scientific literature is kind of more about the engineering problems and much less about can this be done will it be better and so on people are very convinced and people are throwing tremendous amounts of money at it
2: okay jason i'm convinced when can I have one on my desk?
0: Uh, Well, you don't need one. Like like I say, they're not for everything. They're not for general purpose computing. In a sense, it's like things were in the the early days of of classical computers. They were big. They took up a whole room. They cost a great deal of money. And if you really needed something, you could ask somebody who had one to do the calculation for you. So Google, for instance, with your image search and so on, let's imagine they're going to use theirs so that they figure out what the minimum basis set is so that you can find the best platypus picture there is. They solve that enormously hard problem in a quantum way, but then give you the classical answer. That can run on your phone. So you can search your own pictures for platypuses or whatever it is that you need. IBM say that they want to do, quote, insights as a service. You send them your medical records, you send them your stock market data, you send them stuff from your sensors and your Internet of Things and so on. They'll put their best quantum people on it and come back to you with the insights that should arise from that. So for a while they will be uh, let's say in the cloud, they will be you know, held by the people who have developed these things and not sadly sitting on your desk. But that's not to say that we won't see the uh, the outcomes from these things.
2: Great. Thank you, Jason. Now over to you, Tim. Let's talk about bees. What's
1: happening? Well, so bees have been in the news quite a bit recently because uh, their numbers seem to be declining and that's getting people very worried because they provide all sorts of useful services to humans. They pollinate our crops, they make the fruit and the vegetables that we like to eat grow and we rely on them for a lot of our food production. This line of thinking is something called ecosystem services which is basically a way of getting people to take things like conservation seriously. And a lot of people who advocate conservation measures, uh, sort of even today, they're still seen kind of as, as, you know, hippy-dippy people who are sort of wasting their time and aren't really making serious arguments. So the thinking is to counteract that, you take something useful that the natural world provides, like the pollination provided by bees or water filtration provided by wetlands or whatever, and you try and give it a monetary value. And you say, hey, this wetland water filtration is worth half a billion dollars. You should probably spend some money preserving it.
2: And that's when, when it's destroyed, you can actually put an economic price tag on what it costs you to repair it and fix it and not destroy it.
1: Yeah, and it, it when you put a, a price tag on, it fits into the sort of models and the, the modes of thinking that all the people who make the decisions are used to. You know, you have the costs on one side of the chart and the benefits on the other and you just look at which one is bigger and you figure out how how much money to spend and it's really been getting a lot of traction this line of thinking in conservation as a way to speak to the people who make decisions in a language that they understand but there's an interesting new paper just been published in nature communications by a big team of international researchers led by a guy called david klein from the netherlands and that shows some of the dangers of taking this line of thinking too seriously
2: okay so what does
1: it show Well, so what they did was they went out and they had a look and tried to figure out just how much money bees are worth to the the global economy. So they went all around the world. They looked at lots of different crops. They captured lots of different individuals from lots of different species of bees and tried to work out how much benefit they bring us. And the figure they came up with was pretty impressive. They reckon they add about $3,000 per hectare of productivity to the global agricultural system. So when you multiply that all up, you're talking hundreds of billions of dollars bees are great. The high-level findings is, as we said, bees are very valuable and they provide lots of wonderful services to humans and we we probably want to spend money keeping them around, which is especially relevant at the moment because, as we said at the start, a lot of bee populations seem to be suffering. But when you drill down, it gets quite interesting. What they found was that only about 2% of bee species do almost all the pollination work. And these are the the species that are most common anyway that seem to have the least trouble existing in sort of the kind of industrialised farmland you find in the West. Uh, they don't seem particularly vulnerable to extinction. They're basically doing fine, and they're doing almost all of the work.
2: So, in other words, the implication of the study is that we could actually condemn all the other bees that are in jeopardy to uh, ennoble death, and as long as we keep this 2% of bees that do all the work, we're fine.
1: The paper comes pretty close to saying exactly that, and if you follow the, the line of reasoning through, that's exactly where you get. And it's an interesting example of something that people have been complaining about with this whole idea of ecosystem services for a while, that... Um, you might find that when you follow the argument through, it leads to conclusions that people who are keen on conservation maybe wouldn't support. And this is the first time that's been backed up with really, really rigorous data. So, yeah, we could condemn most of the bee species in the world to death. And from a sort of purely economic human point of view, we probably wouldn't really have any reason to care.
2: So it reminds me of what the you know the Marxists said about the capitalists, that they put a price tag on everything but know the value of nothing, so we're able to take something as precious like life and let it go to dust.
1: Yeah, th- th- and this is it. And I think if you're a conservationist, you need to take this uh, you know, pretty seriously. And most people who support conservation, I would guess, don't support it purely from some you know, hyper-rational cost-benefit uh, calculation. And they may want to be careful making arguments that rely on that. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to
2: Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with Good Credit, from a local business to a global corporation.